911. What's your emergency? I can't find Captain Nash and his wife's cruise ship. Tonight, 911 comes to ABC. If we're going to make it out of here, we got to work together. Tonight at 9 on ABC, followed by 7 News at 11. She was hired to fix DC's 911 problems. It was the worst I'd ever seen. But instead says she was fired for exposing the failures. The blame belongs in leadership. Now the I-team digs into what fueled the mayor's decision. Tonight on 7 News at 5. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, welcome back to the States. Back. Yeah. Is it um is it true you went to a, a Le Pen rally and were, were, <laughs> were leading a chant? I uh I was in Paris, you know, during the election and after, and uh let's say there wasn't a ton of enthusiasm for Marine. Uh for or Macron for that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's kind Stuff. of uh the, but there's no left in in this election, so I you know, once again people are kind of I don't think she's. We'll talk about this, but I don't think Ugh, she's going to win. I, I hope. Yeah. I I tried to translate uh, Le Pen and Putin sitting in a tree. K I S S I N G. It didn't really work in France. It was assistance un arbre. Yeah. No, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't for me. Uh, okay. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> today we're going to talk about Ukraine, the next phase of the Russian invasion in the east. Uh, some major developments over the last week in the real and the digital battlefield. Uh, we're also going to talk about why some members of the Israeli government coalition threatening to leave it. Ronan Farrow has a new report about spyware for profit that hits a little close to home mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the economic impact of the continued lockdowns in China. And then finally, because we just, I, we, how do we not talk about it? We got to talk about Jared Kushner and his I, 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 Yeah, I'm sorry I missed that I, last week. So I, I, we got to keep this going though. It was hard. It was hard not having you here last week, but I'm glad you're back. And then Ben, you're doing our interview today. Who are you talking to and what are we going to hear? Uh, I'm talking to Louisa Lim, who's a really great award-winning journalist who's uh, you reported for BBC and NPR, and she has a new book out called Indelible City. Uh, it's about Hong Kong. It's about, the, obviously, the, the protest movement, what it was like to be both a Hong Konger and a journalist covering that, the history that provides context. I think that the uh, dedication of the book, one of the all-time great dedications of the book I've ever seen, sums it up, though. The book is dedicated to everybody who fucking loves Hong Kong. <laughs> That's which great. gives you an idea of where Louisa Lin comes down on the objectivity scale, which I love. I love you know? that. Where does, yeah. where does she live? Is she based in Hong She's Kong? She's in Australia. I was going to yeah, say, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, two quick plugs. Check out the latest episode of Offline. John talks with Lauren Williams, the former editor-in-chief of Vox, about launching Capital B News, which is a new nonprofit news organization that centers black voices. And also check out uh, America Dissected with Dr. Abdul Al-Sayed. He's talking about pain, what it is, how it shapes our society, and how people and providers can have a better conversation about it. So check out Offline and America Dissected wherever you get your podcasts. And Tommy, just two quick things What do you me. got? Uh, I'm at Stanford on Thursday. Um, you see McFall? Well, our, our former boss, President Obama, is giving a speech on disinformation, but then I'm on a panel. Oh, I thought he already gave that. Uh, no, this is the actual speech. Oh, okay. It was like a, was like conversation. a yeah. Got it. Uh, I'm on a panel on- I had some disinformation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You got some <laughs> misinformation. I'm on a panel on digital authoritarianism. Um, and then on Sunday, I'm at the LA Times uh, Book Festival at USC. Cool. Um, talking about my book. Excellent. If you're at Stanford or uh, in the LA area, go see Ben. Yeah. It'll be fun. Check it out. Um, sorry for my disinformation, President Obama. <laughs> okay. So we'll start with Ukraine. 
So the next phase of this Russian assault on Ukraine appears to have started Monday. President Zelensky announced via a video address that the bulk of the Russian military is now focused on the Donbass region, which is that easternmost part of Ukraine. Uh, the Russian army looks like they have increased shelling of targets in the area, and they're still moving troops and supplies to position for a larger ground invasion. So there's some debate about like whether this is the beginning of the new assault or whether yeah, it's really yeah. started. I don't know that it matters. Like It's about to get awful. Um, the Pentagon is warning that the Russians may have learned from their initial mistakes in the war. They're not going to get as overextended. Uh, they will likely do a better job supplying their troops with logistical and air support. There's some debate, though, Ben, about whether Russia will be able to replace its more advanced weapon systems that require high-tech components because uh, international sanctions may have cut those off, so that would be a good thing. Uh, but you know, regardless, Ukrainian units have taken a lot of losses, too, so they're in tough shape. Um, there's a small group of Ukrainian fighters that continue to hold out in Mariupol. Some estimate uh, they're down to about 2,000 troops. They have been under siege for nearly two months. They're basically holed up in this massive steel plant complex with underground tunnels and hardened places to hide. It's like the scariest thing I could ever imagine. This uh, a Mariupol victory would be important for Russia because it frees up troops to go fight in the east, and they'll give them basically total control of southeastern Ukraine. Um, Biden announced 800 million more in arms to Ukraine. That included the Javelin anti-tank missiles we've talked about, the switchblade drones we talked about previously, 11 helicopters. Interesting that like we had all this talk about escalation. It's like here's 11 helicopters yeah, yeah, yeah. on yeah. top of that. Yeah. Radar systems. Uh, this morning, President Biden is doing a call with the G7, NATO, and EU leaders to talk about how to coordinate in this next phase. Ben, we're, there, we're talking about this in terms of like the first phase of support and now this new phase. I mean, do you think there's something the West should be doing differently? I wonder how they're thinking about this. Yeah. What's interesting about this whole dynamic, first of all, is that Russia is now reverting back to doing the thing that we thought they might do, right, which is this campaign that is focused on consolidating the Donbass region in eastern Ukraine and connecting it down to Crimea through Mariupol. Right, that was always right, like, right. like if you go back to you know the, before the war, that was the most logical thing for them to try to do. Instead, we had this kind of massive overextension and self-owned by Putin in failing to decapitate the government in Kiev. Um, then all these war crimes and uh, mm -hmm. and all these other areas. And now it's like they're going back to the plan where they just focus on the east, which is in some ways simpler for them because the supply chains run back into Russia. They've been fighting a war in the Donbass off and on since 2014. Yeah, they know the turf, they know apparently. The, they know the turf better, right? Uh, they've got some people more embedded in some of the, the locations. Um, all that said, I think what this means, though, is you know, the war in Donbass was a stalemate back in 2014 and 15 thousands of casualties, really intense fighting on the ground, you know, significant Ukrainian military presence. And so this could really be like a protracted grinding conflict in eastern Ukraine if this just becomes a fight over territory, basically, in the Donbass region and down uh, to the south. What that means for, for NATO and those of us countries that are arming the Ukrainians, I think it... it it makes even more awkward this question we've talked about in the past about like what is an offensive weapon or a mm -hmm. defensive weapon because essentially like okay if you're defending Kiev and you're giving them anti-tank weapons and anti-aircraft weapons to defend themselves that's one thing but I mean if Ukraine is fighting a back and forth ground war against Russia not only do they need to defend themselves, like presumably they need to take back the territory right. that Russia is currently occupying like tanks. in the Donbass region. So yeah. they need tanks, they need howitzers, they need yeah. helicopters. And and that's what they're going to be asking for, right? And so I think the, the 
the question from a policy perspective is, do we continue to maintain this kind of strange line between offensive and defensive? Or do we just say, hey, if there's going to be a kind of a, an extended, protracted conflict over the Donbass region, are we trying to help them like win that conflict? And that's more than giving them javelins, you know? Uh, or are we trying to kind of help them just defend territory that they're currently holding? And that's more the kinds of weapons we've been giving them. It feels like the U.S. is opening up yes, to some heavier weapons, the are. helicopters and the, and the howitzers, and we're yep. training these guys on it. And, and that could continue to escalate. Yeah, it's worth noting that the Russians are still lobbing like the occasional missile strike into Western Ukraine. Like, yeah. They struck Lviv on Monday night. I think it killed uh, seven people. But yeah, no, I'm glad you mentioned the howitzers because part of what you heard you know, Derek Chalet say when he was on the show was yeah. that you know, we need to train up Ukrainian soldiers before we can give them certain kinds of equipment. Well, we're two months into this thing, Yeah, yeah. you know, and, and you're seeing them give this howitzer artillery system, these more advanced radars. It sounds like they're, we are, the U.S. is providing training outside of Ukraine on those systems to specific Ukrainian troops who will then go back in and train other guys on those systems. And, yeah. you know, there was all this discussion early on about whether the U.S. or NATO should give Ukrainians uh, the MiG-29 fighter jets. But there was an article in the Washington Post a couple of days ago where Ukrainian fighter pilots were saying, those planes won't help us. They're yeah, too yeah, old. They're yeah, too shitty. Yeah. Train us up on F-16s or more advanced planes. And like, it, there's people in that article that suggest give these Ukrainian pilots two weeks and, and maybe they could fly those systems. So I don't know. I mean, this is, we are on the escalation ladder here. Um, and, and some of these more advanced systems seem I don't know, a little more plausible. Well, and first of all, I think that you mentioned the Lviv strike. I mean, one of the things I've watched is the Russians are, number one, they're going to continue to probably try to just terrorize the Ukrainian population yeah. with indiscriminate bombing of cities, even outside of the East. But also like they want to try to, disrupt the flow of all these weapons into Ukraine. Um, the Russians claimed, I think, that that's part of what they were doing in Lviv. I don't really trust anything they say, but it is something to watch. Do they try to kind of, you know, I was thinking about if we train these Ukrainians, presumably they're a pretty big target when they go back in the country. Right. And so right. I'm, I'm sure that we have ways of trying to get people in and out that are, you know, with big land borders possible. But to your point, like this could become a, not just multi-month war, like this could drag on for years, right? And we've been doing these kind of aid packages that get announced with a lot of ceremony and like, you know, but if you start to look at what's in those packages over time, it's like a tremendous amount of small arms ammunition. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of sustainment of the Ukrainian military. Yeah, communications, logistics. Communications, logistics. Yeah. And, and I do think at a certain point, it's like NATO getting together and saying, wait a second, what? these aren't just like individual one-off announcements of packages by countries so they can tell their people that they're doing something. Right. It's like, what is the 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 plan here <laughs> and and what are we prepared to give the ukrainians and you're right like at a certain point if this is like a multi-month multi-year struggle for the existential survival of ukraine when do you shift from giving them like the ex-soviet bloc stocks that are like in a warehouse in poland and start giving them like the new systems yeah. um it feels like if you're if we're in this I don't know why we wouldn't do that. It kind of feels weird to kind of secondhand, yeah, you know, um, right. this. But and I don't want to diminish the scope of the support the U.S. has already given. No, it's, it's massive, it's enormous, it's, it's massive, billions so, and billions. So it's, I'm just more talking about like what does it mean to say, hey, we might need like a six month plan here, like about what we're giving them, how we're getting it in. 
what systems we're willing to share and whether we're willing to get to a point where we're helping them kind of retake territory they've lost in the Donbass region and not just helping them like defend the outskirts of Kyiv. Yeah, I mean, you, you can see that makes it so much more complicated. I mean, how do you tell the difference between a Ukrainian pilot trained up on a F-16 and an American pilot flying through Ukraine on an F-16, right? I mean, this escalation risk is yeah. it's all over the place. You know, a lot of analysts are speculating that Putin wants to get some sort of victory accomplished by May 9th, which is a holiday when Russians commemorate their victory over the Nazis in World War II. Um, you know, to your point about how this war could end, Ben, I mean, where everyone's wondering, like, how it's being received in Russia itself. We're getting some glimpses. The mayor of Moscow said that 200,000 jobs could be at risk in the capital because of sanctions. It's a pretty huge impact. The Russian central bank said Monday that consumer prices are on average 16.7% higher than they were a year ago. So they're, that's some serious inflation, you know, worse than ours. Um, there's also this, you know, constant effort to gauge the impact of Russian casualties on the population. Uh, one notable example came last week when Ukrainian forces hit Russia's most important naval vessel in the Black Sea, the Moskva, and sank it. Uh, the Russians lied about what happened. They said the ship was damaged by weather and a fire on board and that the crew was all safe. But you know, you're starting to see families of Russian sailors serving on that ship saying, hey, we haven't heard from our kids. Does anyone know where they are? There was a, a report in the Washington Post about how Ukrainian officials are, are running the faces of captured or killed individuals through artificial intelligence, in some cases, figuring out who they are, contacting their families directly, sending them pictures of yeah. their dead bodies. I, like, I don't know how you feel about those kinds of steps, like efforts to really like inject the reality of the war back into Russia. It, it, it's weird. Put it, I mean, the, using Clearview AI, which is like used to... Uh, you know, by police in the U.S. to identify dead kids and send their families messages is hard for me to wrap my head around. But I don't know. I mean, maybe that's just sort of the only option. Yeah, I, I, I first of all, on the sanctions piece, um, it's interesting to me if you look unpack those reports. You know, we focus so much more on these kind of macroeconomic indicators and how's the ruble doing. Part of what was so interesting is is where they seem to be really worried is on their incapacity to get parts, components, supply mm -hmm. chain stuff in, right? right? Which is a combination of sanctions and companies pulling out and export controls. That's interesting, right? That, that, that like the, the, where these sanctions might work, we may be, like people may focus on kind of the wrong things. Like how's the Russian stock market doing today? And it's more like, no, this fucking factory is gonna have to close because they can't get the parts right. that they need to make. Yeah. That's really important. I think we, what, what is missing though is also just whether they have revenue coming into them and they are still bringing in like, billion bucks a day oil and gas on oil and gas yeah. and like so that 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 question is going to hang over the europeans uh whether they can do that on this other stuff that i saw those same reports about first of all the sinking that ship is a big deal it's a pretty big you know puncturing of russian you know military might uh which is already uh, you know obviously taking a hit here um but i saw reports of like literally parents finding out you know days later First of all, from the Russian side, it, you're a pretty fucked up society if, like, you don't even feel the need to tell parents that your kid died in the war. Truly. I mean, it's it's really dark that they don't even bother. They have so little value in the, the, the human lives of the people they send into this war that they don't even feel the need to tell people. And, and presumably what they're doing is they're, like, waiting and then they'll lie to the families maybe and tell them they weren't on that ship so that they don't feel like they lost as many people on the ship like that's dark yeah i mean like america yeah. america has done plenty of dark shit like in wars like we don't we don't hide the 
the reality of casualties from the families. Uh, you know, it's just... It, it, there's reports of them just leaving bodies on the battlefield. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Zelensky's talked about this. It clearly yeah. really offended him, upset him. No, I think so. I think we should. It's worth like pausing on all this stuff that we are learning about the, the the deep rot in Russian society from Putin on down. Um, this is another indicator of that on the. There's going to be a lot of questions like like this. I mean, on the one hand, there's something deeply uncomfortable about like texting parents pictures of their dead children yep. um on the other hand like i th- how do you puncture the complete absence of any like semblance of objective reality in russia like i i don't the idea that you'd want to just figure out like okay you can't get through propaganda channels like we just we want to communicate this directly what you would like to think is that there's ways of doing that there that are not like involving images that are not involving kind of stuff that gets up into the Geneva conventions. Right. I mean, right. the same thing came up with the like treatment of, of captured. Yeah. Prisoners. When the Ukrainians yeah. were like parading, you know, captured prisoners on TV to say like, Hey, we didn't know what the fuck we were sent here to do. Technically that I think is in violation of Geneva convention. On the other hand, you can totally understand the impulse of the Ukrainians. And so I, I think there's going to have to be a lot of thought given to like, okay. Um, if you are being bombarded as Ukrainians are, and you're desperate to get the truth to Russians, I think you can give these people a bit of a pass that they're going to be trying all kinds of things to just get the message out about what's happening. What you would hope that they continue to do is maintain a degree of moral high ground where, you know, they're not um, engaged in, you know, like, like, hey, here's a picture of your mutilated uh, conscript who was sent here. I am saying this from a recording studio in Los Angeles. Right. If my sisters were being like raped by Russian uh, soldiers, and I'm not saying that in a glib way at all, like that's happening. Yeah. Like I can't imagine their mentality though. So it's hard for me to, yeah. you know, I think with all the this stuff with the Ukrainians, it's gonna be hard to to kind of be counseling restraint. Similarly, I mean, there's reports of Ukrainian troops using cluster munitions, which are illegal or banned. Um, uh, no one should be using those munitions. They're indiscriminate killers of civilians. But again, and yeah, to your point, like we're sitting here in L.A. Uh, if my country was being invaded, I would probably fire back with whatever I had. Yeah, about. yeah, so, yeah. Um, and Saudis use that in Yemen, by the way. And yep, the U.S. All the supports them. Well, I think the U.S. would use it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a couple of things I noticed in the digital media space. So first, you know, to this point, I mean, Wired had an interesting piece about how Ukrainian intelligence services have been able to find these lists of basically Russian personnel, like intelligence officers, troops, and then just dox them, like make their personal information public on the internet. It's not clear again what the impact has been, but. You know, one of those lists was purportedly a list of Russian troops who fought in Bucha and may have committed war crimes. So yeah. like huge step forward, potentially, if it's a real list in terms of holding people who committed war crimes accountable or at least figuring out who was there. I think this is critically important. It, it, this is the uh, uh, like really a first opportunity, yeah. even beyond what you could do in Syria to like part of what's difficult in international justice. And I've heard from people who I know work in it like is getting it literally at the moment of the crime. Usually you can get evidence after. In Ukraine, what you were seeing is like pretty real-time evidence that would be relevant to war crimes totally. uh, accountability. Uh, and I think this this is something we should devote a lot of resources to supporting um, the, the accumulation of that record. Yeah, and, and like sort of similarly, so this this report, the this outlet, ARS Technica, Ars Technica, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, they reported Monday that Google had stopped blurring out sensitive Russian military sites on Google Maps. Google later said, hey, no, nothing has changed. Maybe you just noticed that it was a little 
you know, that the resolution was there because you zoomed in. Regardless, it does speak to this broader trend that you were just getting at, Ben, of love open source researchers using commercial satellite imagery, social media posts, like basic mapping software to track Russian military movements, loss of equipment like tanks. So we have a, almost a real-time assessment of how many of their uh, BTGs are, are fully up and running with you know tanks and all the equipment they need. And then the last thing I saw was, if you go to buymeafighterjet.com, <laughs> you are asked to crowdsource That's a, thing. <laughs> a $25 yeah. million dollar fighter jet for Ukraine. It's just like we are, this is such a crazy new world of war fighting and equipping and intelligence collection. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, the big tech angle is really connected to the war crimes piece, too, because, you know, TikTok and, you know, other platforms are going to have real-time evidence on their platforms um, that they can either dump, purge, censor, or I would hope mechanisms are, are set up for them to be sharing information that can be evaluated by the kinds of people that investigate these things. I'm showing Ben, buy Please me a fighter jet. Please buy me a fighter jet. I mean, let's make sure that's- Wild. I mean, I, I don't want to discredit that. Uh, you do want to make sure that there's not like a, it's like Steve Bannon member. Like yeah, before the, he sent a lot of build, Bitcoin build, over to this build thing. Build the yeah. wall. Like, yeah. uh, just make sure that like the GoFundMe is Good actually flag. going to the Ukraine. Check in on the relevant sanctions. I think, but this is like, this is, this is the new, uh, like Putin is in many ways, like it's the analog 20th century war where you try to invade and conquer your neighbor. But it's in this kind of new environment. And what's been interesting to me is that Russia got, in addition to kind of Putin getting a bunch of smoke blown up his ass about what a great strategist he was, which I think was overinflated, they were the ones credited with being at the cutting edge of like disinformation. Mm -hmm. And and actually, that's not what's bearing out. What's not bearing out is that like not only the Ukrainians good at this, but like if you kind of awaken this kind of generationally younger, small D democratically oriented people to kind of participate yeah. in the Hackers war effort. like Anonymous, yeah, yeah, like Biden's intelligence folks. This is going to end up being a thorn in Russia's side and it's going to make it hard for... I mean, and, and, and to go back to like even the the texting, part of what's come out in, in this is not just Russian casualties that are uncounted, but conscripts. Like the Russians said they weren't sending conscripts to fight in the war. And one of the things that is coming out in all this digital effort is how many people are, it's just total yeah. bullshit. Like yeah. there are a bunch of conscripts over there. Now, how Putin thought if this becomes a multi-year war, like he's not going to be able to hide it from people. But the fact that he's been trying to, uh, I think speaks to the utility of of, of, of spotlighting all this. But this is going to, look, this is going to be hit or miss. Like some stuff is going to um, be innovative and 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 work out. Some, there'll be grifters. It's like anything else on online these days, right? Um, yeah. You know, we got Malcolm Nance over there fighting in the. You know, There's a little dudes on MSNBC yeah, yeah, just yeah. like in full kit, just yeah. like holding a gun. Yeah, like, this is, what is this world we're living in? Very it's weird wild, war. You know? um, yeah. <laughs> last thing on Ukraine. So last week I mentioned how, you know, thanks to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, Sweden and Finland are now openly considering joining NATO. Finland, just a reminder, has an 830 mile border with Russia. Finland's Minister for European Affairs says they are highly likely to join. In response, Dmitry Medvedev, former president, former prime minister, former buddy of Barack Obama's who uh, has gone full heel. Not that he was ever a good guy, but you know what I'm saying. Uh, Medvedev from his perch at some, you know, the deputy of a security yeah, council. Yeah, yeah. He's been downgraded yeah. like yeah. 75 times. He threatened both countries in response by saying, you know, if you join NATO, Russia has to deploy nuclear and hypersonic weapons to the Baltic region. The Lithuania's defense minister basically called Russia's bluff by saying, you guys already have nukes 
in this region. We know you do. Yeah. What's the difference? So, Ben, I mean, the, the interesting thing here is Finland, Sweden, I think they have pretty professional, oh, yeah. legitimate yeah. militaries. Yeah, no joke, man. Yeah. So, like, you know, and, and Finland's fought a couple wars against the Russians. Yeah. yeah. They fucking fight on skis. Yeah. I mean, yeah. how badass is that? Yeah. But, like, strategic genius here by Putin? No. Drive these guys into NATO? I don't think so. I mean, first of all, this is a point worth underscoring. Like, whenever we were involved in these kind of NATO-associated military exercises or interventions in the Obama years, like, the Nordic militaries generally, like, don't fuck around. What was the term? Um, punch above their weight? They punch above their weight, which we, yeah, overused. But, but so, Finland and Sweden joining are both significant, you know, ad- additional contributors to NATO, but, but also, like, just the ultimate self-owned by Putin. I mean, like, you know, here's another country on their border joining NATO. Like, this is having the opposite effect of what he wanted. Nobody, you know, they can threaten all they want. It's like, once you have decided to threaten the world with nuclear war and have invaded a country and committed serial war crimes, like, we get it. You're you're dangerous. So you're, you know, we're we're actually going to deal with that by amping up our defenses, not by like succumbing to your yeah, threats because you're already you're, nice, yeah. you're already doing the things that you're threatening us with. Medvedev, by the way, I want to pause on this. He said some really whacked out crazy shit since this war began, like some of the worst like kind of Ukrainian denialism and stuff. Yeah. This is the guy like he's a good case study in like what Putin has done. I don't want to suggest I looked into his soul like I you, but he was, you were, he, 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 this is like probably not his preferred outcome. It just shows to what, what, what I take away from that is just how much some guy like that has completely sold his soul to, to return to the soul concept mm-hmm. to Putin. And like Putin just has all the leverage on this guy. He clearly decided many years ago that he like has no dignity and will say and do whatever he needs to please Vladimir Putin to maintain the wealth he has and the status he has. It, it's just a sign of how pathetic these people are, you know, yeah. like Dmitry Medvedev would prefer to be hanging out, I think, probably in like, you know, European soccer tournaments and like London nightclubs. Like, like yeah. he's just like he has no dignity. He came out of a different place, right? I mean, he was younger, right? He was like a campaign manager for yeah. Putin. He wasn't a KGB guy. He, he came to Silicon Valley and like gave a speech off yep. an iPad wearing jeans. He wanted to be that guy. He wanted to push sort of rule of law and certain reforms. And when he became president, you know, you could argue he made a bunch of mistakes, most specifically allowing the, uh, not uh, blocking the Libya resolution at the UN Security Council and allowing that effort to go forward. Apparently that infuriated Putin. But like Putin just cut the legs out from under him from the very beginning because he can't allow an independent power base. Yeah, no, and what he was, he, but what's interesting about Medvedev is like, and again, I'm not suggesting this guy was a liberal in any way. The thing he wanted to do, the thing he invested himself in was trying to create like a tech sector in Russia. The rule of law reforms yeah, so were, was, his big thing. was yeah. about trying to create like, you know, a climate where you could actually have innovation. And like IP. Yeah. So it's not just like oil and gas economy. Like, I think that was actually a legit, legit interest of his. And, you know, it, it just shows you that like, and that's not, I mean, like, like at the end of the day, it's a servile economy where everybody serves Vladimir Putin. It's a servile political system. And this guy... Yeah, I don't think he believes what he's saying, which makes it right. worse in a way. There's no right? half in. But that's what I'm, what I'm yeah. saying is it makes yeah. it. I'm not excusing the guy. What I'm saying is that makes him even more pathetic. It's yeah. like, you know, like oh, I got to stand up there and, and threaten people with. Like, if you've seen Dmitry Medvedev, like not the kind of guy like like 
comfortably threatens like nuclear war. Like, he, you know, no, like, I almost walked into him uh, physically in the hallway. Uh, I was in the prod castle. I came around a corner really fast because I was trying to find you guys and I was late and I ran into almost hit him in his security detail and he would have um, foreheaded my belly button. Yeah, yeah, You yeah, know, yeah, he was wearing like a little yeah, purple exactly. suit. He looked like yeah. Prince kind of, yeah, yeah. a Russian Prince, um, the singer <laughs> symbol. But uh, yeah, no, I'm not a good guy. Clearly um, all in on this fucking genocidal like, war yeah, but all these people i mean it's just really it's like what what has happened what what you know decades of of putinism has done to that country is just really a abomination just hollowed it out um okay let's take a quick break we come back we'll talk france and the uk israel china spyware and jared kushner Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. So two updates from last week, Ben. So first, uh, in France, where voters go to the polls this Sunday, I think the 24th, and decide between President Emmanuel Macron and a right-wing racist nut named Marie Le Pen. Uh, in the last few days, Le Pen and her party were accused of misusing European Union funds. So we'll see if that traditional scandal has a political impact. And then in the UK, Ben, speaking of scandals, Boris Johnson's justice minister resigned after Boris received a light penalty for his constant partying during COVID. Again, you were just across the pond doing a bunch of shoe leather reporting, <laughs> yeah, shoe yeah, leather, yeah. wine drinking. Did you pick up any uh, any bits and pieces from the from the ground about what's happening? I mean, I think in, in France, like there's been this pattern in the last couple of elections, right? Of like, like the Le Pen reaches a bit of a high water mark in the polls. Every kind of thinks about it. And then she slips and, you know, the alternative wins. And the last time was Macron. This time it's Macron. I still think that's most likely. We're knocking on wood over here. The ghost of 2016 looking over my head. Um, But you just feel like part of what is so um, obvious is like Macron, for instance, was like trying to appeal back to the left, who he's basically given the finger to for the last few Mm -hmm. years. And so he's suddenly talking about climate change is yeah. going to be the big thing of his second term. Change the retirement age. And it's kind of yeah. like, dude, like, okay, we get it. You like fracture the traditional like right and left parties to kind of create this center. But Macron, I mean, what's clear to me being over there is he spent most of his time looking over his right shoulder, right? Yep. And and so the left, you got the people who really are going to stay home. Like you got because why should they trust Macron, right? Now, I hope they get out and vote because Le Pen is such a catastrophe. And I think there's enough French people who understand that. But I met some French people who said, well, like some of my friends are saying, maybe we have to let them see what Le Pen is like um, to, to kind of wake everybody up here. And yeah. I'm like, no, no, no. <laughs> we, we, that, we experimented with that in the U.S. and yeah. let's not do it. So I, do I think Macron will squeak by. But I think part of the lesson is 
And hopefully what can happen here is the left can regenerate into something more constructive than what it has been in the last kind of 10 years. You, you need a strong center-left alternative in France. In the UK, you know, Boris is, I think, kind of skillfully, but it didn't take that much skill because, like, a war is a big deal. Like, you know, he's really leaned into the war in Ukraine and like, oh, I, uh, you know, I have more important things to worry about than these parties from two years ago. Right. And he's kind of helped by the fact that Brits themselves are moving on from COVID. But like, I think that's why it's important for labor to continue to drive. That it's not about whether or not you agreed with COVID lockdowns. It's about the fact that this guy was lying to you he lied, repeatedly lied to Parliament, and had different everybody. sets of rules. And he'll clearly survive this scandal. But like, it should stick to him as a guy that thinks that those rules apply to him and then there's rules that apply to everyone else. By the way, the other story that just bears a quick mention when I was there is like this, this scheme that they have now to deport people to Rwanda. Hmm? Um, they're deporting like refugees who try to come in through the channel, like Afghan refugees to Rwanda. They like not so subtly give the Rwandans a few hundred million dollars in assistance. Um, I mean- What it, a weird, cynical- Yeah, it's just, it was dark, you know. Random plan. Yeah. I, I, I mean, Brits need better than this. Yes, you know, yes they do. do. Um, speaking of fragile coalition governments, we turn to Israel because that current Israeli government, it could be on the verge of collapse. So here's the backstory there. So this year, Ramadan, Passover, and Easter overlap a lot, which means you have a bunch of worshipers from many different faiths converging on the same sets of holy sites in Jerusalem at the same time. There were reports that, you know, the, that overlap and, and there's specific visitation times for different religions that Israeli police blocked some access to some holy sites for Muslim worshipers. That led to fighting between Israeli police and Palestinians, which again led to these the police wildly overreacting, yeah. beating people, storming the Al-Aqsa Mosque, which is just a wildly inflammatory action. And we talked about this a couple of years ago. It led to a huge war in yeah. Gaza. Um so, you know, the latest tensions that we just talked about come after this wave of terrorist attacks over the last couple of weeks against Israelis. Those terrorist attacks have led to a series of Israeli military operations in response that a bunch of the Palestinians feel like these are better described as, you know, really collective punishment on a community than yeah. counterterrorism operations. So overnight, militants in Gaza fired rockets into Israeli airspace. Those were intercepted. So everyone is okay, I think. But the Israeli military then retaliated with airstrikes in Gaza. Those, you know, hit hard into communities that are incredibly tight together. So again, that gets us back to the political situation. Remember that the the Israeli government coalition led by Naftali Bennett is basically just a stop BB coalition. It's made up of right wing, left wing, center wing, Arab parties that just wanted Netanyahu out of there. But now Ram, the Arab party, is furious about the treatment of Palestinian worshipers. They're threatening to quit the coalition. So parliament's out until May 8th. There's time to work things out. But if Ram and this governing coalition don't sort things out, you could see the Knesset dissolve. You could see new elections in Israel. So Ben, new story, same as the old story. Yeah. Uh, you got the Israeli occupation, the iron grip on holy sites, no real political progress to speak of, uh, no efforts to create a Palestinian state. The flare-ups, bombings, innocent people get hurt, rinse, repeat. It's just a horrible cycle. Yeah, except it, it gets worse each time. You know, like the like it, there's a kind of normalization of, you know, like storming the Al-Aqsa Mosque would have been, you know, 10 years shocking, ago, totally unthinkable. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, they're doing that. And, and, and the heavy hand, I mean, we should say, obviously, that these shootings are, are horrific. And, and one of the many horrific things about the shootings of the Israelis is there was some indications that ISIS like was getting involved hmm. inside of Israel, potentially uh, that the last thing we need. Right. Um, but like the, the degree of heavy handed 
response kind of merited out you know, on the Palestinians generally. It seems like as many people have died in these response counterterrorism have, operations and have died in the terrorist attacks. Like that, and that feels... That should matter. Strange, and, yeah. and, and and what it suggests is like, none of this is sustainable. This Israeli government coalition is not going to last, you know, throughout the term. The, the idea that you're not going to have another Gaza war, you know, feels very unlikely. The idea mm-hmm. that you're not going to have more... Fl- I mean, so long as the underlying conditions continue to deteriorate for the Palestinians... Israeli politics kind of can't decide whether to just come out and be the full right wing expression of we want all the land and we want the Palestinians out or whether they're going to kind of try to walk this line. Like the the, the big questions remain unresolved. But underneath that, that it's a continued kind of rightward drift in terms of settlement, construction, in terms of treatment of Palestinians. And unfortunately, that's been the status quo for a while here. But the status quo is such that you look up every couple of years and it you know the the likelihood of there being a Palestinian state or there being anything like equal rights of Palestinians goes away and and meanwhile this violence just festers underneath it and and can flare up in different forms. Yeah, I mean the, the lack of progress gets papered over by brute force. Yeah. Until something explodes. Yeah. And I'm worried we're about to go into the. I'm cycle worried that again. we are going to be back in this cycle again. Um, speaking of, of Israel, uh, Ronan Farrow has a big piece in New Yorker this week about the spyware industry. He spends a lot of time talking with and investigating the NSO group, which is the you know, Israeli intelligence-linked company that sold the Pegasus spyware that has been used by autocrats to target journalists and activists and all sorts of others all over the world. The biggest news in Ronan's story is that the software was used to target the British government, specifically a data network at 10 Downing Street. Um, it's really worth reading Ronan's piece in full because it just gets at the sweep of how massive and pervasive and growing this business is. But Ben, I mean, I think like, the kind of depressing conclusion for me is that like even with Ronan writing about it, even with these guys like thoroughly exposed over and over again, even if the NSO group gets shut down, it doesn't seem like the industry is going anywhere, right? Like there's like kind of a lesser evil, maybe Israeli-based similar company that has Ehud Barak on the board, right? So maybe yeah, they're yeah. a little more politically palatable. Yeah. It's just like, feels very there to stay. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's the 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 spyware piece and then the kind of geopolitical piece. And, and the spyware piece, is, this is like here to stay. Like uh, if you are a journalist, if you are a dissident, if you are a public official like you just have to assume that you're under kind of constant efforts to penetrate your communications. And you used to think that, I mean, I remember, you know, about the Russians or the Chinese, but like now pick 31 flavors of who could be doing this, right? Um, I mean, like we're criticizing Jared Kushner and and the Saudis today. It's like, is that going to set off somebody? I was going to, but to anticipate that conversation, you know, part of what's so striking when you read this stuff is like, you know, yeah, they're targeting um, the British, you know, 10 Downing Street, or they're targeting members of the European Parliament. And it's like clearly, clearly this kind of weird nexus of like the Emiratis and the Israelis, mm-hmm. right? Like there's a lot of Gulf money in this and it's all Israeli. Yeah, they technology. think the UAE might have hit, targeted they think, the They think the UAE 10, was yeah. hitting number 10. And it's like, what? why is that not a bigger problem? Like, and they, by the way, it anticipates what we're about to talk about Jared Kushner. Yeah, a rupture. Like these, like there's been this, the combination of the amount of political influence that like, I'm talking about the Gulf here. Let's put aside Israel for a second. Like that the, they've bought in places like London and Washington, you know, like, like just look at the, the, like the, who owns, you know, Newcastle in, in London, look mm-hmm. at, you know, who the most, 
you know, popular ambassador is in Washington, the Emirati guy. Like it, it, there, this is like a, a an amazing uh, and revelatory uh, set of stories where I guess it's okay if you spy on us so long as you like throw good parties and spread <laughs> a lot of money around our capitals. Like it's pathetic, you know. Yeah. And and then you add the Israeli dimension to it in post Abraham Accords. It's kind of like, well, you know, we we like the Abraham Accords. So does that mean that the Emirates can never do anything wrong again? <laughs> like, because that's kind of like the vibe that you get is like, uh, you know, they're gonna pivot to like a, an Abraham Accords photo op anytime that you know it turns out they're 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 spying on you, they're undermining US foreign policy, or they're being autocratic, or they're locking up dissidents, or they're doing all these things. And it's like, is that all okay? Because right. they take photo ops where they all link hands with like Tony Blinken and I mean well, there, I don't, there's, I don't, a, there's sort of like a well maybe that's a, there's a you know cost of doing business kind of big brain thing. But yeah. then maybe there's just like a you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend for some of these people, right? Like yeah. does the Trump really care if you know, the number 10 is spied on or a bunch of dissidents and journalists are spied on. I don't know. That stuff used to matter. Though. I, sh- I mean, it should <laughs> like, matter, like, It obviously. should matter. It's like, just I, cynical. I, I, like, it just, like, we're all supposed to be friends here. Like, and, or at least it, Americans we're, united well, and, by and, country, and, yeah. but Are we supposed to care, like, if our alleged allies and partners are, like, doing this to our other allies and partners? Like, that should matter, totally. right? I mean, and, and and I just think that like there's been this normalization of, and it's all tied back to money in some way. Like you know that because anything involving the Gulf ends up tying back to money. Like that these people can, they don't have very good intelligence services, the Saudis and Emiratis, so they could just buy, they can just kind of outsource it to private intelligence outfits, some of whom are American, including like former Air, Americans, yeah, former American spies or Israeli uh, spyware technology. And like, that should make people uncomfortable that yeah. that like, you know, that, that they don't recognize any boundaries when it comes to spying, even on like their so-called partners. Well, let's talk about the money piece. I talk about our friend Jared. So last week uh, we talked about how uh, you were out. I talked about how New York Times report detailed how Jared Kushner had gotten this $2 billion investment from a Saudi run investment company. This what we learned was it came over serious concerns from the professional oversight board. That oversight board's concerns ranged from pointing out that Jared has no clue how yeah. to invest money to worrying that the Saudis would get bad PR just by being associated with Jared, which is, I guess, hilarious and also true. Um, the Intercept got hold of Jared's pitch deck, right? So Jared got his $2 billion kickback from the Saudis. Yeah. MBS looked at all these concerns from professionals and said, I don't care. I'm going to give my buddy $2 billion. He helped me cover up my role in this murder, yada, yada, yada. He helped me get the job, maybe, of Crown yeah. Prince. Um, the Intercept got a hold of Jared's pitch deck for, I guess, potential investors. It is just hilariously shitty. The, the mission statement is accelerating transformation through connectivity. It's hard to think of a more nonsensical bunch of buzzwords. There are little like graphics as bios of all the former Trump people who are now on board. And Ben, my favorite part is that it has all these like bios of like former officials, whatever. There's like a three-star general who gets like a little tiny quarter yeah, of a yeah. page. And then Jared gives himself a two-page bio. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> his 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 career was so thorough and he's done so much in his 40 years on this earth that he couldn't fit his resume on one page. So basically it seems like he's just trying to use this company and the Saudi investment to sell Wall Street on his access to Gulf autocrats, right? It's like exactly yeah. what you're just getting at. I mean, I sent her warned about this whole deal. She said, yeah, you know, DOJ should look at it. Maybe an oversight committee will look at it. But I don't know that I have any confidence 
that they will because, you know, you see a lot yeah. of treasury secretaries like Steve Mnuchin or others in Democratic administrations leave government and then kind of trade on that service. And I don't know. It sucks. It's so depressing. There's so much wrong with this, um, including, obviously, every aspect of Jared Kushner's participation in it. Um, I'm just going to try to break it down. First of all, the Abraham Accords thing does matter here, which was essentially like commercial ties. Because like, mm-hmm. as we've talked about, there was right. no like war that was put in. <laughs> right. And this would be analogous to like after I negotiated the Cuban normalization, me like taking over the Carnival Cruise Line, you know, like like to between Havana and Miami or something, right? Like Or getting he, a big he, check from the Castro. Yeah, he, he, so just, yeah, I mean, he literally he's just directly trying to monetize like his government work in stride, right, coming out. But that's the smallest part of what's wrong with this, okay? First of all, this is the back-end payment for everything from covering up for the murder and dismemberment of the journalist to potentially Jared's participation in, in, in running interference from Mohammed bin Salman. Potentially there, were, there was reports that he might have been providing information about problematic family members who we knew ended up in the Ritz-Carlton. Mm-hmm. The U.S. had a blank check of support for the ongoing war in Yemen throughout the Trump administration that has caused a humanitarian cat- catastrophe. So on and on and on, this is a back-end payment for Jared's support for Saudi policies that were fundamentally autocratic and often not in line with U.S. interests. Then there's the question of like, well, what happens if Trump runs again, right? So not only is this back-end payment, this could be a, a, a future investment. Down payment. Down payment yeah. on, you think that if like Trump gets back in there, the Saudis aren't going to get carte blanche to do whatever they want with American foreign policy, given the billions of dollars that they've pumped in to the Trump family? Of course they are. Like, this is the way the world works. It's purely transactional. Never mind, by the way, something that doesn't get enough attention. Jared Kushner was getting the presidential daily briefing, despite the fact that he was not supposed to get a security clearance. Mm-hmm. Do, like, how many secrets are in this guy's head? I mean, if, if if he wanted to monetize, like, the information that he knows just from being the highest level intelligence consumer in the U.S. government, there's plenty of stuff. Right. And so there's all kinds of dangers to U.S. national security, the corruption that comes from the purchasing of this kind of influence, the the warping of our foreign policy priorities based on like if Trump gets back in there, never mind, you know, are the Saudis going to be playing in the election interference game in 2024, the potential sale of or just uh, jacking up oil prices right now. Yeah. To to fuck with Joe Biden, Biden. get the Republicans in there. Right. All all that may be happening. And I want to put a fine point on something you said. This is the most grotesque version of it, but both parties do this kind of garbage. Like the Emiratis and the Saudis, they're the ones who pay top dollar for board appointments, for speaking engagements in their countries. And there's way too much self-censorship about these relationships and both parties in Washington. Jared and Steve Mnuchin are just the most grotesque, over-the-top, totally values-free manifestation of what is like a profound corruption of, of U.S. foreign policy. Yeah. And that you know, doesn't even touch on like the think tank money, the think people tanks, who are lobbyists, the Farah, the lawyers. Pod- podcasts and, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. like uh, the whole nine, nine the whole yards. Yeah. Nine yards. Gross. Uh, hopefully someone will actually. I mean, this would be a great area, I feel like, for the Senate Foreign Affairs Committee, the House Oversight Committee. Someone could just do a little digging into Jared's deal while there's still time. I don't know. Maybe we learned something at least. I, well, and I think that there are actually serious policy questions about how much kind of foreign corruption can we have in our politics? Because this stuff has always been around, right? Like, look who paid for both Bush libraries. <laughs> Just go look at those walls. It's a lot of yeah. a lot of golf money. Um, it, but like, it's gotten once you had people like the Trump people 
who really are just like in it for the grift and respect no norms or boundaries, it's just open season right now. And and I think that in addition to the oversight, like, is there anything we can do to tighten this up? Yep, no, got to happen. Uh, last thing we'll talk about in the news. So we talked about the lockdowns in China, specifically Shanghai, a couple times. Just a quick update on that, because I was listening to uh, an NPR report this morning that said cities accounting for 40% of economic activity in China are under some sort of lockdown. 40% of China's economic activity under lockdown. So that it just sounds like far from abandoning the COVID zero policy and these draconian lockdowns, China is doubling down on them because their vaccines don't work very well against the Omicron strain of COVID. So I guess I'm just getting at the point that this economic impact is going to be huge. I mean, today the IMF slashed its growth forecast for China to 4.4%, which is well below the goal that Xi Jinping has set for himself. I'm no economist here, but like I worry for the people in China, right? Being under a lockdown must be horrible, but also for for Democrats trying to run for office in a democratic world, like inflation, uh, the war in Ukraine hurting the economy, the recession that could come from China, the sanctions, like I, I am very worried about the economic headwinds for any progressive candidate anywhere right now. There's never been this many. I mean, I can't remember in my like lifetime in politics when there've been this many headwinds, like right? Greek debt, oil, like yeah, for yeah. Us and, and we had some rough like, times. Well, the financial crisis obviously was the. It's like a singular event, yeah, but the, singular uh, event. other but, than that. But yeah. in terms of being in, in like an ominous kind of period, I, what stands out to me is like, there was kind of this boasting victory lap from the the Chinese government about their like authoritarianism working in the context of COVID. Well, I, I don't think it did, right? Because no. you can't like they're in a box right now because they, they, their strategy seemed to be predicated on like waiting till COVID is gone, and then, but COVID's never going to go away, you know. And so at a certain point, they're going to have to like live with the fact that people are going to get COVID. Because you can't just keep locking down cities of 20 million people. Right. Or let in- Every time there's a variant. Vaccines that actually work. Or like let in variant. Yeah, like they, they're trying to have it always. They're trying to not report their deaths, keep things locked down, use their vaccine instead of foreign vaccines to send some message that their system is better. When in fact that leads to their people being locked down. They're not eliminating the spread of the variants anyway. It, their economy is taking hit. It, like they- this is not sustainable. Never mind the fact that like these videos of people like screaming out their windows in Shanghai. But they're like, starving. There's you know there's some dark dark stuff. We're seeing the the lie being put to the idea that the efficiency of authoritarianism is somehow preferable. Like look at Shanghai. Does that look preferable to you? Have like, you seen the, the videos of these? like drone dogs running around with bullhorns on them being like, stay in your house. Yeah. Oh, COVID uh, lockdown is real. I, I mean, like that- Dystopian it, hell is here. And and how are they, like when when will they stop doing that? Because I hate to break it to you, like there'll be COVID next year. You know, like it, it'll hopefully be like a less virulent form of it. But at a certain point, like you can't like just- continue to have this kind of zero COVID strategy. Well, uh, Jared's uh, deck for his new investment fund touts yeah. his experience getting rid of COVID, so maybe they could hire him. Uh, yeah, a little warp speed effort over there. Yeah, get yeah. some warp speed. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick break. and we come back, Ben is going to talk to Louisa Lim, uh, who is an award-winning journalist who has an amazing new book out called Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. So stick around for that.
Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details. Okay, I'm very pleased to be joined now by Louisa Lim, uh, a very uh, excellent journalist who has a new book out called Indelible City, Dispossession and Defiance in Hong Kong. Uh, Louisa, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Such a pleasure. Um, I just want to say at the outset, I mean, this this book is incredible. Uh, everybody should check it out. Um, I mean, it connects like all the dots um, with respect to Hong Kong, because what you have here is the historical context, the history with the British, the history of the handover, uh, and then just an incredibly vivid way into covering um, the protest movement, both as a Hong Konger yourself, as someone who grew up there, um, this incredible story of the King of Kowloon, uh, this remarkable graffiti artist that doesn't even do him justice, which was a kind of subplot that you tracked. But uh, in this examination of Hong Kong identity, you really bring it all together into a book that is about not just Hong Kong, but I think really tells a pretty timeless uh, and universal story. So so thanks for writing that as my, my first point here. Um, I want to start with a question, um, you know, that gets at kind of where we are now. Um, and then we'll go back into some of the points in the book. You know, as someone who traveled a lot to Hong Kong in between the, the handover and then the last time I was there was during... Uh, the district elections in 2019, so right before the national security laws, you know, it, you could feel at those times like, you know, Hong Kong was one country, two systems. It was a place that was distinct from mainland China in the kind of speech that took place, the kind of open media environment that it was, just a sense of separate identity there. How, how would you describe Hong Kong today? Is, it, is that still the case? Um, or... Or is, is Hong Kong increasingly kind of just another Chinese city on the back end of those national security laws? Well, I would say that Hong Kong is, is not just another Chinese city. I think it will never be because of the its own separate history and the people who live there. But as a speech environment, a place to live, I think the national security laws has really, I mean, it, it marks it out from mainland China, those, those national security laws, they really mark it out from mainland China because they're very broad and they're very indistinct. So if you're a journalist operating in mainland China, the red lines are quite clear. You always know, um, you know what are the areas that are going to be politically sensitive. But the national security laws that were imposed in Hong Kong in June 2020 um, they're not the same. So these are laws that outlaw um, secession, subversion, collusion with foreign powers and terrorism. But there are no very clear definitions. And the way they're being used is quite extraordinary. So I, I'm, I think about 183 people have been charged since they've been used. But some of them, the offenses were things like possessing stickers with banned slogans on them or... Um, carrying banners with banned slogans, um, 
there, there was a case last week where a sedition law was used, but it comes under the banner of national uh, security crimes where six people were arrested for clapping in court. This was seen as a seditious offense. So, you know, the red lines just aren't clear. You know, the journalists who are being arrested for uh, collusion with foreign powers for op-eds that are calling for sanctions against Hong Kong or China. Um, and, you know, the red lines aren't clear at all. People, you know, they talk about there were no red lines. It's just a red sea. So it's yeah. just really hard to know what's permissible and what isn't. And like a lot of the conversations that you have with some really incredible characters in this book, the, this, the national security laws talk about not you know, defaming China to foreigners. Like, could a lot of the conversations that inform this book not happen today? It's really difficult to know. I mean, you know, I think yeah. people might have those conversations with you, but you might have to think a lot more carefully about whether Naming those people them. can yeah. be named or not. And, you know, to me, that was always um, an issue. And I took out a lot of names and a lot of details and a lot of conversations before the book was published because. I just wasn't clear about where those lines were. I mean, you know, what it's done, the national security legislation is really introduce a whole um, category of speech crime that had never existed before in Hong Kong. I mean, sedition yeah. laws were on the books, but they weren't actually used. But now, you know, a third of those arrests have been for speech crimes. And, you know, yeah. you were in Hong Kong before, you know how, you know, in the past, yeah. Anyone could say anything. And that was one of the things that marked it out from China. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, you know, you, you trace also what part of what Hong Kong is up against is they've had to define their identity in opposition to obviously an encroaching totalitarian kind of Chinese power after you know, being a colonial uh, uh, colonial subjects of Britain. And you have a great line um, about kind of what the British had done in reshaping the past that they taught Hong Kongers. Um, as a means of also kind of shaping the future. And now China's doing the same thing. You, you write, in not being able to determine their own fate, they, Hong Kongers, lost control of their future. And in losing their records, they'd lost control of their past. And obviously, you talk about that in the British context and the Chinese context. And I'm wondering, can you describe for people, like, how has, um, particularly in the present moment, the Chinese Communist Party tried to kind of change Hong Kongers' understanding of their past through everything from school curriculum to what you can say. And what is that in service of in terms of the future they want for Hong Kong? What is this connection between past and future and the control that Hong Kongers are subjected to? Yeah, it's a really tricky and interesting sort of question. And it was something that I thought about a lot because I went to school in Hong Kong. I was raised there and we never learned about Hong Kong identity in schools. And I later, when I was doing the research for the book, I found out this was a really... Um, conscious decision on the part of the British government because they did not want Hong Kongers to know how Hong Kong had become part of Britain, how it was ceded to the British in perpetuity. They didn't want people to know the history of the Opium Wars because they thought it was so shameful on the part of the British that it might affect the way that Hong Kongers thought about their colonial ruler. So there was this real effort under the British to sort of um, obscure Hong Kong's history and, and really, you know, define Hong Kong as this sort of, you know, a free port, a great emporium of trade, you know, an international city, um, which was a barren rock before the British came. And we really swallowed that. We believed that um, absolutely, uh, because that was what we kept hearing. 
And then uh, in 1997, after China, uh, after Hong Kong was returned to Chinese sovereignty, that narrative shifted and it shifted, you know, almost overnight. The, the, what school children were being taught was, you know, Hong Kong has always been a part of China since time immemorial. Now it's sort of returning to the fold. And, you know, it was just framed as, you know, another place in China, a place that has had a slightly different history, but another place in China. And if you project forwards, that's also uh, what China's vision for the future of Hong Kong is, you know. China has for many years signaled this. They have um, this slogan, the Greater Bay Area. So copying yeah. the Bay Area. And the Greater Bay Area refers to the swathe of cities along the south coast of China. So that would include sort of Shenzhen and Guangzhou and Zhuhai, all sort of big metropolises. But Hong Kong is really in their vision seen as just one city in the Greater Bay Area. And, mm. and, you know, that's the future that they see for Hong Kong to the extent that, you know, even in, in the next elections, they're making plans so that people who are living inside China can vote in the Hong Kong elections. I mean, you still have to be a Hong yeah, Kong resident, yeah. but it's still the sort of blurring of the borders and the boundaries in a really um, not a very subtle way. It, well, it's, 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 so it's interesting to me, though, is it kind of what you describe there? And in, in, in the book, you kind of captured this well, like just massive asymmetry of power in the sense that the, the Chinese Communist Party, they have all the control ultimately. Right. Um, and and they're trying to turn Hong Kong into just another Chinese city, you know, one other megapolis as part of their greater Bay Area. And yet you have this remarkable protest movement. And, and one of the things you captured really well and it's something I experienced when I was there during the protest movement. It's like everybody knew it was going to fail. Um, it was destined to fail, and it that didn't matter. Like the, the 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 if anything, it made it even more intense. It was like people wanted to be heard one last time. I mean, what what was it like? Why do you think people still protested so adamantly and and in such large numbers for such a long period of time, even though? The outcome was kind of preordained. How, how do you think about that? You know, it was a question that I asked people time and time again on the streets, you know, from the very first day. Um, as you say, the future, you know, the end of the movement was already preordained. And I, I just remember because there was this clip that was going around on social media and they were interviewing this young guy and they said, you know, what are you doing out here? Um, you know, and then they asked him, uh, do you think the, the 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 movement will succeed? And he said no. And they said, well, why did you come? And he said, at least you tried. Yeah. And yeah. I do think that idea of at least you tried has really become part of um, you know. In many ways, Hong Kongers have never had a voice. They right from the beginning, they you know were not represented when the talks that handed. Ultimately, ended up handing Hong Kong back to Chinese sovereignty. Happened um, in the early '80s. Hong Kongers weren't even at the table. They weren't represented. They didn't get to vote on the agreement. There was no referendum or anything. So I think they've never had a voice. And in many ways, that that's pushed politics onto the streets 
because, you know, the legislature and the structures of power have always excluded Hong Kongers and they've always been designed in a way that the Hong Kong voice will be <laughs> uh, sort of tamped down. And so, you know, you can do that for so many years and then you get this kind of explosion. And I think so many people saw the 29 movement as an end game. This is a question I wanted, I really wanted to ask you because I, I, I took this away from your book. And, but when I was in Hong Kong um, in late 2019, working on, on my book and interviewing people, I started to hear this comparison from some of the young people comparing themselves to, to Jews and saying, we may have to kind of go in exile for a long time and maybe even beyond my lifetime, but we're creating an identity that we will ultimately return to as a people. It was an incredibly powerful kind of image to think about. And now as you have a lot of emigres in Taiwan or in Australia or in the UK, um, I, I wanted to ask about the sense of of Hong Kong. You talked about his identity in motion, but now it's... I, potentially an identity literally in motion out of Hong Kong. And and you do see this kind of solidarity being forged with, I talked to people in Belarus who said they were like being, re, you know, people in Hong Kong were reaching out to them proactively and saying like, we will train you in, you know, civil disobedience. And, and so what is going on here with this idea of like Hong Kong identity, literally leaving the city itself? Like the question that I had in my mind is, that, is Hong Kong a place? Or is it something else? Is it something that is being taken away by people who may have to leave the city thinking that they're going to return on their own terms at some point, whether it's 10 years, 20 years, or 100 years from now? Um, yes. I think Hong Kong is a sort of, it is a place, but it's also increasingly, you know, becoming almost like an idea. We've had this huge outflow of an exodus of people from Hong Kong, and that's partly driven by Hong Kong's zero COVID policies, which have been incredibly draconian, you know, putting people in quarantine camps and separating parents from babies, you know, yeah. all this kind of thing. So we've seen uh, 150,000 people leave since the end of December. And these communities in exile are, you know, quite often quite activist, you know, they're organizing showings of banned films. They're continuing to um, campaign, as you found. They're lobbying for sort of Magnitsky acts, wherever they are. Um, and, you know, I did ask one uh, activist, I, I, I asked them that very question. And he said, um, you know, the struggle is still the same, but the battle field is much bigger now. It's a global battlefield. So in many ways, I think when they're leaving Hong Kong, they're, they're taking with them, you know, this, uh, you know, this, they're not giving up on the place forever. And I think what we're seeing is the birth of Hong Kong exile communities, and particularly in the UK, where there are, you know, tens of thousands of Hong Kongers. Yeah. Um, I think we, we will see we will see those communities, you know, becoming more vocal and trying to create small democratic conditions that might change the world so as to make it possible for them to return to Hong Kong in different circumstances. It's pretty remarkable. I want to ask you one more question about you, yourself. Like you, there's a great kind of subtext in the book about being a journalist um, and and being a Hong Konger. And um, you know, I think. 
you you write something that will ring true in, in different uh, scenarios. Um, I could sense at a moment in my comment which journalistic neutrality might become immoral, as even-handedness could undermine the very values I cherished. If I had to choose between being a journalist and being a Hong Konger, which one would I pick? Um, you ultimately, I think, do both, right? You, this whole book is an act of journalism with deep reporting and research. But, you know, you begin with yourself spray painting an expletive-laden sign uh, against uh, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, so you, you do pick that side. But in the sense, I guess I wanted to ask, like, is that even really a choice? Because isn't it, isn't it, aren't we increasingly in, in realities where, particularly as, as authoritarian systems bear down on journalists, and, and these are authoritarian systems that seek to kind of obliterate the concept of objective truth, um, at, at, at what point does this kind of the, the grasping for even handedness become, well, like you say, immoral? Um, because, I mean, obviously, Hong Kong is the most extreme version of that. But we obviously see this with Russia and Ukraine. We have versions of that here in the United States. Like, how, what did you learn about this dynamic that that you think applies not just to Hong Kong, but to how people think about journalism globally in an age of of creeping authoritarianism? Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a very tricky question for any journalist to handle. And I, I do think that Ukraine has slightly shifted the calculus on this because Russia's behavior, you know, whatever angle that you look at it from has been, um, <laughs> you know, it's been so outrageous and, you know, in violation of so many you know, on so many different levels, and there's so much proof against Russia that I, I think in the reporting of that, um, we, we, we see, uh, you know, there's less, and on the other hand, you know, there's, there's less of that kind yeah, of yeah. attempt. And part of that is also, you know, an issue of language. There are many, many Ukrainians who speak amazing English, yeah. uh, and we, you know, our airwaves are full of full of them. And I think in the case of Hong Kong, it was a little bit different because of, as you say, that different power dynamic. Yeah. Um, and because the media itself in Hong Kong has already in many ways been captured by China. So, you know, when you open the newspapers in Hong Kong, when you read those, the reports that you were reading would be heavily biased, um, you know, always sort of quoting police and government sources, referring to riots on the streets. Um, and then that narrative that you would see in the Hong Kong newspapers would often be picked up in different yeah. small ways by the Western media, partly because as the protest movement went on, there were fewer Western journalists or outside journalists that stayed. And yeah. partly because China actually did a relatively, um, you know, they had a social media campaign going on that in some ways was relatively sophisticated yeah. And that was being picked up. So I think that in writing, in the way that I was writing at the time that I was writing, I felt that, you know, I, I was having to make sort of my own choices. And I felt that I was, you know, that there was almost like a preponderance that was on the other side. Yeah. Um, and particularly because, you know, even today we see it the in the language that's used about Hong Kong, you know, so the next chief executive is about to be um, announced next week. And we're still seeing people talking about it as an election or a race. There's one candidate 
John Lee, yeah, yeah. a former policeman, the former Secretary of Security, he's being anointed yeah. by a committee of 1,200 people. This isn't an election. It's yeah. not a race, you know, but the media and all the media, you know, it, all of the Western media is still using this language. They're talking about elections for, um, you know, these local polls, but the most of the opposition is in jail. That's not yeah. an election. And, yeah. you know, because we're so ingrained in the kind of language we use, I, I think for me, sometimes, you know, in those, even in those small decisions, it, it passes, you know, it passes a point of accuracy, but because everybody's been doing it for so long, they just continue. Um, yeah. So I think those were some of the things that kind of, I was thinking that I was thinking about when I was writing. And I think Ukraine has, as I say, shifted the needle a little bit um, because it's made it, I think, more more acceptable to take a side yeah, in yeah. an obvious way. And and I I think Hong Kong wasn't in the same position, partly because, you know, Hong Kong was part of China, so there was always that sort of opportunity for people to raise that argument. Yeah. Well, and I, if I'm cynical, I could say there's a lot more money uh, <laughs> tied up in China than Russia, right? Right. Um, yeah. Right. Um, well, look, I, 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 as you, I hope you can tell, like, I, I think you've figured it out <laughs> in this book. Like you, you found a voice that is both authentically you, uh, has a dose of, you know, a, obviously a point of view, but, um, all the attributes of, of journalism. So, uh, thank you for that. And, and best of luck with, uh, with your book rollout. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's, um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and what great questions. Yeah, well, <laughs> Very I, tricky. I, I, <laughs> no, I know. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm, I, I just, uh, I, I, I really found like, you know, you, there's something very, Hong Kong is not like any other place or, you know, as someone who's kind of interacted with a lot of places and issues over the last, you know, I'm I like, this, this is unlike everywhere else. And yet somehow everything that's happening here feels like it implicates everything else, you know, if that makes sense, right? <laughs> like, like this is totally unique and it's not like any other place. And yet the future of democracy and capitalism and technology feels like it's playing out here somehow, you know, and that, that, that too, uh, that's why I think I was trying to, to have you uh, answer these enormous questions, you know? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I, I do think it, it, it felt like a, you know, a little Petri dish yeah. where you could look at what was happening in Hong Kong and you could start to, see you know what that means for china's future and you know it doesn't it, it really doesn't look good whatever way you look at it yeah and for all of our futures yeah. you know um uh you know because it feels like this is the future you know? <laughs> and, and and i mean i what i found inspiring about the hong kong so much like other people but also troubling is part of what we would always hear about the chinese communist party is like Oh no! People want this model. Like that, maybe people would prefer the stability and order of this autocracy, so long as there's wealth creation. And then here's the one city on earth that literally has the choice of raising their hand, and being like, "Yeah, yeah, we want in." And instead, like the whole city is out saying, "Like, no, 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 we don't want to be a part of that." And I find that very inspiring. That that human beings, given the choice, would rather be themselves and have their own identity. But then I found it very dark that the deck was so stacked against them, you know? Yeah, the deck has always been stacked against Hong Kongers. 
and (laughs) in so many ways and you know for me one of the biggest vacuums was you know the lack of any hong kong voices anywhere so what i really wanted to do was center hong kong voices to try and tell a hong kong story which was full of hong kong voices and even if the histories that they were thinking about were imagined because the histories that have been imposed on them have been so far from how they see their own history i just loved that kind of you know that kind of creativity um that allowed people to sort of create their own myths and legends and heroes even though they yeah. you know in so many cases they were these incredibly flawed characters and i think that was one of the such a thing that's really endearing about Hong Kongers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the idea of covering up graffiti so that someone can discover it many years in the future is a metaphor for everything somehow, you know, um, which. Uh, OK, well, I, you know, I, I'll let you go. But uh, I again, I, I appreciate it. And uh, you know, best of luck and, and keep in touch. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah. If yeah, you're ever course. in Melbourne, get in touch. <laughs> I will. I will do. We'll do. OK, bye. Thanks again, Louisa, for joining the show. Uh, glad you're back, Ben. We missed you. Glad to be back. It wasn't fun reading um, updates about Jared to myself last week. I have to say, very, like a, I missed you very yeah, much. It was I, very sad. Well, doing a like a solo podcast is a very interesting <laughs> like challenge. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was great to like connect with um, the interviews are great. Uh, yes, but the uh, Alexi was amazing. But but the uh, when you um, yeah, like it's it's a little tough to like sit there and. Just kind of talk and hear Just your own voice. Be outraged at yourself mostly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm glad you're back. Uh, it's you know it's important to get abroad a little bit. Yeah. Got to see what's going on. See over what's there. going on in the world. Yeah. Come back. Did um, Boris's like fine break while you were in London that he was getting like, fined and had to pay for it? No, I, I moved on from there. I mean, I, I, I told you I had like a good cocaine scandal when I was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, and this Rwanda thing was like uh, breaking, but uh, that's. Yeah, shocking. I'll tell you, a place where people moved on from COVID is London. Like, really? You, you get on the underground there, and nobody's wearing a mask, and I mean, they've they've just decided it's over. You know. Well, they're getting it, but they're just like, we'll see how that goes. Yeah, yeah we'll see how that goes. Yeah. All right, get vaccinated, buddy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's what I was thinking. He's like, get vaccinated, get uh, get boosted, get boost up. All right, talk to you guys next week. See ya. Positive the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth, who upload our episodes as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Oh man, what would I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know. Take a nap, read a book. No, I wouldn't do a book. And I Listen, I wish I would pick a book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa. My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Oh, yeah? There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. 